The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Thank you for being here with us. Those who are joining us online, thank you as well. Will you please pray with me? Father, as we come to your word, we do pray that your spirit might illuminate to our hearts and to our minds, it might sink down into the very fabric of our souls, that we might know you and love you and pursue you with all energy and desire. And Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth today, the meditation of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. We're continuing on in our sermon series during Lent on the seven deadly sins. Since everyone's getting back from spring break, we decided sloth would be really good for all of us to give attention to. I'm just kidding. It's just how it all shook out. In fact, actually looking at many of your spring break pictures on social media, it seems like the very last thing you were doing was being lazy and lying about. Everybody seems to be working or playing rather almost as hard as they work. In fact, I was thinking about this looking at the congregation, at many of you in the first service and here as well. So many of you are entrepreneurs, own your own businesses. You have multiple degrees, engineers, lawyers, hardworking, A-plus students. If anything, sloth might be the one vice in this sermon series in which we can all, in this congregation, can take a deep sigh of relief and say, oh, this is not going to be a hard one, one of those for us. I won't be too convicted. You know, as I was studying sloth, I found that really we think of sloth as slow, lethargic, or lazy. But really, in the seven deadly sins and the categorization of it, the, fir- the word that was actually originally used is a word called acedia. Acedia. And one of acedia's classic symptoms is busyness and workaholism. Oh dear. <laughs> acedia actually means spiritual apathy. And that's really what sloth in the seven deadly sins means. It means not pursuing sanctification and spiritual transformation. I don't know if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, It's an allegory written by John Bunyan. 
uh, it's about a pilgrim named Christian, and Christian takes a travel uh, on a journey to the celestial city, to heaven itself, and he meets, after he goes through the cross and relieves the burden of his sin, he goes on in earnest towards the celestial city, and the first thing he meets on his path are three men on the side of the road with chains around their legs connected to deep to weights, and these three men on the side of the road are sloth, simple, and presumption. They're all chained to the feet. They find the work to keep moving forward down the path of progress towards the celestial city too difficult. And in many ways, they don't think that they really need to. They're all, in other words, apathetic. It's a helpful, it's a helpful allegory for sloth and acedia are like a weight that pulls us down toward the other vices, to find comfort in the other vices, to ignore spiritual danger in our life, to make us presume that we do not need to make any effort at spiritual change. So this morning, as we look at sloth and these three different passages, I want to look at three words that come out of these three passages to help us understand sloth. The first is linger, then oilless and granted. Linger, oilless, and granted. The first is Lot here. And his predicament that he finds himself in Genesis chapter 19. The word that sticks out in this passage, you probably see it. Verse 16 here, a short little sentence, but he lingered. Or in another translation, one of my favorite words, he dawdled. A judgment has arrived. Danger is imminent. It's staring Lot in the face. And all that he can do is hem and haw. In fact, the angels, if you notice, actually have to grab him and his family by the hand. Angels showed up to him, and he still doesn't recognize the danger. And they have to pull him out of the city by hand. Well, why? Well, one reason, I think, is that Lot has forgotten what it was and is to be a pilgrim. If you know the story of Lot, you know that Lot is Abraham's nephew. And he journeyed with Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees when God came to Abraham and said, go to the land that I will show you. Go sojourning to a land that I'm about to give to you that you do not know yet. And Lot was all for it. He went with Abraham. He participated with Abraham. He was a pilgrim and a sojourner like Abraham to find the land that God was going to give to them. In Genesis 13, Lot and Abraham, though, separate because their families and possessions had grown so big that they kept bumping into each other. And in Genesis 13, it says that Lot looked up he looked into the land and he saw that the land around Sodom was well watered and green like the garden of the Lord, like Eden. And so Lot chose it. He wanted Eden. He was still pursuing it. Now Abraham continues to go be a pilgrim, but now Lot stops journeying. And it doesn't mean that Lot is lazy. When the angels come to find Lot in Sodom, they find him at the city gate. What that means during this time is that he was in the place of importance. He was a leader of the city. People looked at him. In other words, he had earned a place on the city council. He had to work hard to get there and to get to that point. But the city of Sodom, if you know anything about the story of the Bible, is an evil place. It's unjust. It's sexually destructive. It's sexually out of control. And so God comes to judge it. But now, for Lot, it's hard to leave because he didn't know how far from God he had wandered by staying. You see, he wanted the promises of Eden. That's what made him go to Sodom. But he stopped wanting the person who makes Eden a place of peace and joy and abundance. He had forgotten what a pilgrim has to do. Keep his eyes up 
looking forward to where he was going. His eyes, Lot's eyes instead became so fixed and focused on the things right in front of him that even with the danger present, it was hard for him to change. Notice here verse 23. It says where Lot ends up. Lot came to Zoar. But the angels tell him in verse 17 here to flee to the hills. And this whole in-between passage here, verses 18 through 22 that we cut simply for space, Lot spends his entire time pleading with the angels, saying, please don't let me have to go to the hills. The hills are too far away. The hills are too unsafe. Just let me go to this nice little town, Zoar, right over here. And the angels do and let him. But it's another illustration of the weight of sloth on Lot's ability to move forward and be transformed. It's too much. Even the little you are asking me is too much. And when the judgment and catastrophe comes, what Lot was left with, what all of us will be left with, are who we have been becoming. See, because that's always how judgment and catastrophes arrive. You realize that, right? They come unexpected, unlooked for. They never come when you are well prepared. When you say, I will make this decision when the time comes. Well, when the time comes, you will never be able to make that decision. And not all judgments that come into our life are like ones because of sin, like here in Genesis 19. They can come for lots of different reasons, but they will still feel like everything is burning down to the ground around you. When cancer shows up, when the economy goes upside down, when you find out your spouse has been having an affair, when your investments fail, you're going through a divorce, you find yourself alone and forgotten in the middle of your life because of how you've manipulated and used your friends, and suddenly you are brought face to face with one person, yourself and your character. And who have you been becoming all these years? Are you going to change when disaster is showing its face, or are you going to double down? And the reality is, even with danger right in front of you, the choices that you have been making for a thousand times in your heart, those are the choice that you will make when the danger and judgment and catastrophe is looking you in the face. Because you can be so in love with where you have been that you stop moving forward spiritually at all. Like Lot's wife. Notice what the text says here. Lot lingered, but Lot's wife she doesn't want to leave at all. She hangs back. It says that she's behind Lot. Then she starts looking back, doing the very thing that the angels told them not to do. Do not stay. Do not look back. She looks back in order to stay. She was too afraid to wander forward into the place of change. She instead chose to stay in the place of destruction. If you think that you would not do that, you need to spend a little more time thinking about your soul and yourself. Because this is a place that felt known to her, where she could be in control. The result was she became a pillar of salt, like a statue, looking like a human, but immovable, soulless. Rebecca DeYoung, who we've talked about many times in this series, when she's talking about sloth, she says, it is a person stuck between a self it cannot bear and a self it cannot bear to become. Lingering stuck like a pillar of salt. And it's similar in many ways to our oilless ladies here in Matthew 25. Here, the, the virgins here in Matthew 25, when the moment of crisis, it comes upon them, springs on them when they're not expecting it. At midnight, the bridegroom shows up, the one they've been waiting for. Suddenly he arrives, but they're all asleep and they're not ready. 
And the five foolish virgins, well, they have no oil for their lamps. The one thing they needed to do, and so they miss out on the marriage feast. Now, there's a lot to see in this passage because it's really rich with biblical allusions. There's a Greek Orthodox theologian named Levi Merikakis who's really helpful at bringing forward all of the biblical allusions in this passage. But I want to look at three things in particular, three things to see as a biblical allusion in this Matthew 25 passage. One is that weddings and marriage, of course, is a very biblical picture from Genesis, from Genesis all the way to Revelation with the Song of Solomon right in the middle. It's a picture of the relationship between God and his people. Jesus begins his ministry how? In John chapter 2, at a wedding, at the wedding of Cana. And this is a story about Jesus' return at the end of time when he's going to consummate and complete all of his redemptive work. And what is it at? A wedding. So that's the first thing. The second is that the table, sorry, that the tabernacle and the temple, they had within them the places of worship for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They had within them a lampstand that was crafted to look like an olive tree, because an olive tree was a symbol of the Israelites, a symbol of the people of God. And this olive tree lampstand was in the tabernacle and temple, and it was always burning, filled with olive oil so that it might burn continuously. So the nation of Israel might know that the light is a visual reminder to them that God was in their midst, lighting up the darkness, being near them and with them. The third is this. Olive oil in the Bible is a representation of God's spirit, taking the fruit of God's people, the olive tree, right? The fruit of God's people and turning it into something holy and alive with God's fiery presence. You see all this in this story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, it's more than just a story about being ready for the unexpected to arrive. Because of course, Jesus is obviously the bridegroom coming again. He tells this story right before he goes to the cross and do his work uh, in his passion, after he does the work of his cross. But his return is not when these virgins and even not when we expect him to come or even when we want him to come. God is on his own timetable. And these young women here, These 10 young women, the wise and the foolish virgins, they're all potential brides, representations corporately of the church, but also individually because they are all holding what? Lamps. Individually, they have become the lamps of the tabernacle and of the temple, ready to burn with the light of God's presence, just waiting for the presence of God, the bridegroom, to return and show up. But in order to burn, when the flame arrives... They need what? Oil. The crushed fruit of the olive tree. The fruit produced in their lives. What happens? Well, everyone waits. These five foolish virgins, they don't get any oil. They don't have enough. And they assume that they can just borrow. Notice what they say to the others. Well, you have some oil. Give us some of your oil. In other words, they say they think the righteousness and love and transformation that other people have, they can get by association. They presumed that by being in the wedding party was enough. They had forgotten that the point of the wedding party was the bridegroom, not the wedding party. And they are oilless in the moment when the very point, the bridegroom, shows up and they miss the feast. And it leaves us with a very poignant question. When Christ returns, What life will you be offering to him? You cannot rely 
on other people's love of Jesus. You cannot rely on other people's fruit that they have produced in their life because God does not love us generically. He loves each of us individually as individuals. He looks for the same quality of love in us. No, he looks for a different quality in love of each of us because he is transforming each of us differently, individually and uniquely. He wants to produce specific and particular fruit in your life that can become the oil that burns with his love and presence. We can only give the oil that our lives have produced. So are you allowing God to transform you according to his direction and plan? Notice how Christ concludes his parable in Matthew 25. It's a call to the lingerers like Lot and his wife, and it's a call to these oilless virgins. Watch. Be alert. One day it will be you and me looking at each other face to face, and all you will have to offer is the character of your soul. So be ready. Watch. Be a pilgrim. Keep moving forward. Let me transform the fruit of your life into the oil that can be aflame with my presence. In other words, in the context of this sermon, don't be slothful. I know that for many of you, hearing these words just seems like, well, put another burden onto my back. Add another thing to my to-do list. More work for me, but just spiritual work now. I'll fit it in somehow. That I think is to actually miss the very heart of salvation. See, my friends, we're not simply saved from something. We are saved for someone. The curse of sin is not that it is wrong. The curse of sin is that its wrongness keeps us from God. So God comes to us to claim us as his own, overcoming the things that stand between us and between him. Jesus did not linger. In other words, he came at the appointed time and Christ is beaten and crushed upon the tree of the cross so that the oil of his life, the Holy Spirit itself, could be poured out onto all those who belong to Jesus by trust and by baptism. Or let me say it this way. Do you know what Gethsemane means? The place where Jesus prayed that agonizing prayer on the night of his passion. Father, not my will, but yours. Where he committed to going into God's transforming work upon the cross for you and for me. Gethsemane means olive press. That's what it means. Gethsemane was a garden filled with olive trees. You see, the antidote to sloth is not trying all the more. The antidote to sloth is to responding and surrendering to the love of God in Christ that he has already done and undergone in order to claim you as his own. See, the demands of love that come from Christ, they're not from a tyrant who says, change because I want you to. They're the demands of love that come from a lover who is wooing your soul. We are to respond to his grace and mercy and beauty because what lover, honestly, what lover is content when the one that they love takes no interest in deepening and strengthening their relationship? Of course not. Someone who loves someone else wants the person that they love to respond to their love that they might change together and have their lives interwoven together. And that is the heart of transformation. God is trying to make us into the persons to be worthy of the love that he has already given to us and granted to us. 
And that's our last word, granted. Granted. You notice it shows up here in our New Testament passage, 2 Peter, verses 3 and verses 4. Peter says that the result of Christ's work in his passion, crucifixion, and resurrection is that for those who are united to Jesus, we are granted all that we need for life and godliness. In other words, we are changed through Jesus' power already at work in us. He's already given us everything we need to be transformed. All we must do is surrender. Not only that, he says he's also granted us all of his promises, the promises of his redemption, of all that he's going to do in our life and in the world. Why? So that in verse 4, we might become what? Partakers of the divine nature. Did you hear that? Partakers of the divine nature. That is what you are saved for, to be totally reunited to God, sharing his very life. All of this has been granted to you through Jesus, not earned, given. It reminds me uh, of that great cinematic masterpiece, The Princess Diaries. I don't know if you've seen that wonderful movie or not. Uh, but Anne Hathaway finds out she's a princess, right? She doesn't act like or seem like a princess. You know, Hollywood does, Hollywood does its miraculous magic to transform Anne Hathaway into a bumbling, confused, ugly bumpkin, which she obviously isn't, and obviously still isn't, even when they try to transform her into one. But she doesn't act like a princess in any way. And the point of the movie is that she needs to be transformed to become a partaker of the nature of what a princess really is. Is that not highbrow enough for everybody? That's fine. Okay, let me bring it home for us. Last week, me and the kids were watching Spider-Man No Way Home, okay? And Spider-Man is granted Tony Stark's mantle in this movie as the next Iron Man to be the leader of the Avengers in some sense, right? And he gives him his invention, Edith, which is a technological power that can basically do anything. It's the promise of Tony Stark, right, given to Peter Parker. And what does Spider-Man do in this movie? He gives it away. Why? Because he's not ready to live into what he has been granted. Until suddenly, he has to, and he's transformed. See, Spider-Man and Aunt Hathaway they didn't earn their places. It was granted to them. And then they were transformed inside and out to partake of the reality of their new natures. If you are in Jesus, that is what is true of you as well. You have been granted something. And now we respond to take hold of what has been given to us. As Peter says here in verse 5 of 2 Peter, for this reason, for all the things that have been granted to you in Jesus, for this reason, respond, make every effort to produce this fruit in your life, to participate in this transformation that God is doing in your life. Add to yourself virtue and knowledge and self-control, faithfulness or steadfastness, godliness, affection for one another, love. Why? Because this is what godliness is. This is what God's nature looks like. It's what the character of Christ is. The person that you are being united to for all eternity. So verse 8 here, Peter says, if you are participating in this transformation, or in other words, if these qualities are yours and increasing, then you will not be ineffective and unfruitful or nearsighted. You notice those two things? They fit pretty well with Lot and the foolish virgins. See, the foolish virgins, they were ineffective and unfruitful because they would not prepare for what they had already been granted. They had already been made members of the wedding feast, but they didn't realize the point was the bridegroom, so they didn't prepare for his arrival. 
And Lot, of course, well, he was so nearsighted that he was lingering in the face of danger because all he could see was what he was leaving and not where he was ultimately going. And he wasted his life because his eyes could no longer focus forward on the hope that was ahead of him. So he became blind to what he originally sought, the garden of the Lord. He didn't recognize and realize that the Lord was not present anymore in this place that he was looking for, where God and humanity dwelt together. So my friends, watch. Be alert. You don't know the day of calamity or judgment. You don't know when the bridegroom, when Christ will return. You don't know, but you need not linger. You need not wait for that. You can wait for him by not lingering, by not being found oilless. You can take the chains and weights of Assyria off your ankles because you have been pursued by the God of love through Jesus' redemption. and You've been granted all the rights and privileges and power of who? Of the bride of Christ, the one that he is coming for. He has redeemed you that you might share his very life with him. And so while you wait for the bridegroom to return, watch. Keep your eyes on the horizon like a good pilgrim, looking to where God is taking you. Surrender yourself to his love. Allow him to produce in your life the oil of his transforming works, that on the day when you stand face to face with the one who has loved your soul from all eternity, you will be able to burn brightly with joy and love and with the very life of God himself. Amen. Father, we do ask that you would enable us to take off the weights that bring our heads down and force us at times to look only to the things right in front of us, to our very selves and the things that concerned us and the temporary, and not have our hearts and lives and eyes be lifted up to the eternal, to you, to the people you are making us into, so that we don't even participate in what you're doing. Father, do the, give us the grace to remove those weights that we might truly be made into the people that you are making us into for all eternity. In Christ's name, amen.